Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I think there is something kind of dangerous in building people up with this expectation that the thing that they do like for work is going to be the single most valuable contribution that they're going to make as a human being on earth. Because not everyone has that opportunity. Not everyone has the privilege and luxury of doing so. And I think it reinforces this idea that your self-worth is dependent on your job and that your that that you know your unique gifts can only be expressed through some sort of you know work or some sort of economic exchange or some sort of transaction. And I always joke with my husband and I say, you know, like. I love what I do. I love my job. I find my job incredibly fulfilling. I don't think that like billions of years of evolution and like all of the things that my ancestors had to get right over, you know, tens of thousands of years was some sort of divine plan to get me to this point so that I could just like write books about work, you know, like my life purpose is beyond what I do for a job. And I just think it puts so much pressure on people to have to find this end all be all, you know, it's like we, it's like work not only has to pay the bills, it not only has to be intellectually stimulating for those people who are lucky enough to do something that interesting, but on top of all of that, we also expect it to be spiritually rewarding. And that doesn't mean you can't work for companies that have good causes. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't support companies that are doing good. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be good, that we shouldn't be trying to change the world. It just means that going back to my earlier point, our value as human beings are just intrinsic in the fact that like we just exist. The fact that we exist is enough. Everything else is just extra positive stuff. And please go forward and do those amazing things and 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 help improve people's lives like of course but remember if you did that you're amazing but even if you're just you you're still amazing and you still exist and you still matter and that's the distinction i just wanted to make about that i'm srini rao and this is the unmistakable creative podcast where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements built thriving businesses written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online 
you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep.
These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Rahaf, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me back. I'm so excited. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was introduced to you uh, by way of our mutual friend, Sarah Peck, when you were here as a guest uh, the first time. And you have a new book out, which we will talk about in quite a bit of detail. But before we get into the book, uh, as you know, I like to start with really strange questions. So I want to start by asking, what was the very first job that you ever had? And what is an important lesson you learned from that job that you have applied to your life going forward? Ooh, one of the very first jobs that I had was I ran a dog walking service in my neighborhood, um, which uh, fed my lifelong obsession and love with dogs. And something that I learned was that there's a difference between loving something and doing it for a job. (laughs) And so um, I learned that I really love dogs, but I don't know if I necessarily loved um, you know, scaling up a business and and sort of having the responsibility of all those dogs. I just realized I really liked my dog, mm-hmm. and that was that was that. Why do you think so many people make that mistake? Um, you know, because we have this sort of mantra, and I know you've written about this in the book, which we'll, we'll talk about. But this idea that oh, if you love something, uh, it would make a great job. Like I realized, I would never want to run a surf camp because if I was teaching somebody how to surf, it would be a lot less time in the water. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like. Somewhere along the lines when we talked about work, we started like mixing up what it was supposed to do and the the role that it was supposed to have in our lives. And it went from like being fulfilling intellectually, you know, stimulating, being uh, able to, for you to pay your bills into something that like looks much closer to almost a spiritual practice now as though a job has to be your, your, your divine professional destiny. And I think people make that mistake because we don't often think about it. We think, we think it's a, it's a matter of increase. It's a matter of scale. Oh, I love this. If I did it all the time, I would, maybe I would love it even more. I would get to do this every day, not realizing oftentimes that our, you know, the the rarity or not doing something every day is is part of the reason why we appreciate it Mm -hmm. so much. Yeah. You know, so you're of, of Middle Eastern descent, mm-hmm. correct? If I remember correctly, you're Persian. Uh, Syrian. Uh, Syrian. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Even more interesting <laughs> than that may well be so many more questions. Um, one, okay. In that case, I think I want to change the question I'm going to ask. So, you know, if you're Syrian, like what are your parents, uh, you know, what is their view on everything that's happening in the world today, particularly in a place like Syria, like knowing that this country that they're coming from uh, is going through, you know, what seems like to be an absolutely devastating humanitarian crisis? Um, it's really hard. It's really hard for somebody to watch their home, their, their memories, their, the places where they grew up, the places where they studied and fell in love and worked and to see all of that be literally destroyed by bombs. So there's a sense of frustration, a sense of loss, a sense of deep anger. You know, you have a lot of geopolitics, a lot of agenda at play. I think it's, I think it's made them a little bit, in some ways, a little bit more pessimistic, I'll say, you know, about like the world and where we're going. But in many ways, I also find that it's made them and made our family incredibly, incredibly grateful for the opportunities and the privilege that we have in living in Canada, you know, I live in France. And so, um, on one side it's, it's, you know, my dad said to me the other day, like that's, that's life, you know, the pain that you feel and the tragedies that you witness, like that's just, that is just a part of life. So you have to look for the good where you can. 
And I think there's something to that. I find that often, you know, in life, the people that are the most compassionate or, or empathetic are the ones that themselves have suffered tremendous loss and tremendous pain. Mm. How old were you when uh, your parents left Syria? I was about six, five or six. Okay. Uh, the reason I ask is I wonder, and I always wonder this about people who are immigrants, what kind of uh, narratives did your parents pass on to you about careers and adult life? Is it, are, are Syrians like Indians with the sort of high expectations of doctors, lawyers, engineers, and that kind of stuff? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, I will also say that for for immigrant, and I'm just going to speak for myself, I'm going to say for immigrants, but I'll say for my immigrant experience, I think the fact that my parents, uh, when they came to Canada, landed in so much uncertainty that if for many, many years, it wasn't even about, you know, your professional destiny or do what you love. It was just a matter of survival. So I know for them, um, in particular, while they were always very encouraging and very supportive of what I wanted to do, I know that they worried about the entrepreneurial um, aspect of it more because they worried about like the lack of perceived security, you know, the lack of not having a regular job, not having um, that stability. And so I, I know that um, in my own family, when I first wanted to start my own business, like my dad and my mom were very supportive, but they were like, listen, this is going to be like you're going to have to be very okay with risk. You're you're going to have to have a financial plan to prepare for the lean times. Like they really sort of drilled into me this idea that um, of safety, and uh, and I think that's true for I would assume that it's true for most immigrant families that come and then struggle and fight and build up a life and then maybe want their kids to avoid some of that stress or fear. Um, what did your parents do for work? So in Syria, my mother was an architect um, and my father was a computer engineer and an engineer. And uh, when we came to Canada, uh, my mother had to teach herself English and she worked a variety of jobs, everything from tutoring in Arabic to working at fast food joints to, um, you know, to taking odd jobs here and there. And then finally um, got her English competency up to a level where she could get a job at like an architect firm. Um, you know, at an interior design firm. Um, so that's what she did. And my dad came here and he spoke English already and started uh, a business, like an electronics business, like an IT type business um, that he built from the basement of our house um, into a pretty successful venture. So <clears throat> for somebody like your mom who is educated and then immigrates to another country and is forced to choose, you know, uh, work that clearly she's overqualified for, or that fars you know falls far below her her sort of level of intellect. Um, how do you reconcile like that kind of loss in identity that occurs uh, in that time that you're bridging the gap? Like, what are the lessons you learn from that from watching that experience with your mom? I mean, it's a very emotional question. Like, my mom is the kindest person in the world. And every day I'm reminded and I'm grateful for the sacrifices that she gave, you know, that she made for us. So I always felt, honestly, I felt very guilty for a large part when, when I was old enough to understand the, the cost that she paid. Um, when she, yeah, when I was old enough to understand the cost that she had paid, I felt very guilty because I didn't think that it was fair. I didn't think that, um, 
you know, it was very hard to watch her struggle. It was very hard to watch our family struggle financially for a long time. And then for my mother in particular, it was quite isolating because in Damascus where we lived, she had siblings and cousins and her parents. And so we, she left that entire family, that entire ecosystem, that entire support structure and went to a city where we didn't know anybody and she didn't speak the language. And so, Mm. um, I think it taught me a lot about resilience. It taught me a lot about strength of character, about sacrificing. I mean, I, if I could just like package everything and give it to my mom, I would in a heartbeat because everything that she gave up was because she and my dad believed that coming to Canada would give us, my sisters and I, a chance at a better life. And you know, I know, I know she would be upset to think about it as a debt because she would never expect anything like that. But it's like, how do you repay an act of love like that? Like, you know, and I always say to myself, like, you can't really repay it. All you can do is just honor it and honor it by living the best life that you can. And by being, you know, contributing in a positive way, by taking care of your family. Like, that's really the only way that I know to honor the sacrifices that my parents made for yeah. Um, so we'll get to the book, but I have uh, one more question about this. And this is something that I think is probably fresh on my mind just because of the fact that my sister got married uh, recently. And, uh, you know, one thing I, I witnessed was, wow, okay, so we were two Indian people marrying each other. Naturally, a lot of traditions and a lot of culture are going to be preserved and probably passed on. And in my mind, I thought, wow, if I don't marry an Indian person, how much of that will be lost and how will it be lost? So I wonder in your own life, um, you know, what aspects of culture that you've preserved and how have you done that? Yeah. And that's a great question. Um, you know, I'm not a very religious person at all. My husband isn't either, but one of the things that I've tried to do is to keep, um, from a food perspective to try to get my mom to teach me how to make the food that she's been making or her family has been making for generations, you know, recipes that were passed on from my grandmother, um, so that's really one of the ways. The other way is language. I, and I'm very, and I mean, I'm very embarrassed to admit this now, but when I was younger, I didn't want to learn Arabic. I actually like refused when my mom wanted to give me lessons because I wanted to be Canadian, you know, back that like the idea for me back then of what a Canadian was didn't really align with somebody that had like a, you know, a strange name, even though now that's very much not the case, but I wanted to sort of fit in and I didn't want to learn Arabic and I didn't want to learn about the food of my, you know, the food from my culture. I like really wanted to, to, to be like Canadian. Um, and that was something that I, I regretted obviously as I got older. And so trying to make that up, (laughs) make up for that by learning about the food, but also investing time and relearning the language. So I'm taking Arabic lessons and just like trying to, to, to be exposed to, you know, the, the books and the, and the movies and the series to just be a little bit more connected to where I came from. I think to me, those are the things that mean the most to me. So that's what I'm trying to to focus on. Mm, Amazing. Well, let's do this. Uh, Let's shift gears and let's get into uh, the content of the book. And, you know, I wonder what prompted you to explore this. And I want to start by referencing something that you actually say at the very beginning of the book. The desire for more is one of the underpinnings of our intense focus on productivity. We want to be better, faster, stronger, richer. However, by constantly striving to do more, we are highlighting on some level that we believe that what we're doing is not enough, an attitude that is reflected back at us 
in the host of new services tools aimed at helping us squeeze as much as we can into every second. I mean, that was the crux of it right there. It was, I wanted to understand where this relentless need to keep doing more as a way to feel better, as a way to feel like we were enough, where it came from. Um, Because I know it came from inside of me because in my own work and my own practice, my own life, like I was very, I'm very fortunate that I have the the luxury of, of being able to be the master of my own time, you know? And yet, despite having this control over my own time, over my own, you know, energy resources, I was like acting in a way that didn't make a lot of sense to me logically. I was acting in a way that went against my creative best interest that actually hindered my performance more than helped it. And considering I'm somebody that like understands the notion of rest, understands the notion of, you know, recovery and of sustained performance over time. I was like, why am I acting in this way? It was like very strange. And the answer to that question ended up turning into a three-year research project to explore exactly where this idea of not being enough came from, exactly where this idea that productivity is the answer for identity, for self-worth, for value, because I realized that the only way to change that behavior was to understand the root cause of the behavior, not try to slap on band-aids, you know, band-aid solutions that I inevitably failed at anyway, because I didn't understand the underlying drivers that were shaping my actions. Yeah. So, I mean, what really are the, the underlying drivers that are shaping these actions? Cause it's not just you, right? I mean, you said so in the book, the system we all subscribe to the one that has been embedded in the corporate strategy since the industrial revolution has been stacked against us since the, since the beginning. And here we are 50, 60 years after the industrial revolution and not a lot has changed. And that's exactly right. Like for me in the book, the, there are three sort of forces that I explore, um, you know, on, and how they influence us. And those forces are systems, stories, and self. So systems is our history. It's, it's exactly what happened since the industrial revolution and how we're thinking about things like productivity and creativity and performance and success, how those ideas have evolved over time. Then there's the stories. So like the media, who we identify in our culture as being work heroes, what, who do we emulate and idolize? Who do we aspire to be like? What are the attributes that we really admire in a person? You know, how do we define success? What are the myths that we tell each other about success? So all of those things and how they fit into making sense of the world that we live in. And then finally, ourself, which is in sense our biology. You know, how is the way that our brains and bodies wired? How do they fit into this conversation around productivity and creativity? And how does the brain optimize for creativity? And how do the systems that we've designed for work go against what our brains actually need. And it sounds complex. And honestly, because it is complex, it's this, it's, it's, it's not just one thing. It's a multitude of things. And I wanted to try to make sense of how those multitude of things coalesced in us as individuals. Yeah. Well, let's do this. I mean, I think the, the thing that people are probably wondering is, okay, then how do you optimize those things? But before we, we get into to that, there's something you said here that literally became my idea for a, a blog post and potentially, you know, a, a book even. Mm. You said that if you're doing very in- intensive intellectual work, you might be exhausted after three hours, in which case you should probably take a break or even call it a day. And so I started writing this post called the three hour workday. <laughs> and I said, you know, there's a, a sort of paradox here that, you know, since Tim Ferriss wrote the four hour work week, God knows when, like 15 years ago, Mm. we have more tools and technology that should enable us to actually work less 
than you know we could before. I mean, so much of what he had actually said we should automate using humans can be now done by software. Mm-hmm. And yet the paradox of that is that we're dealing with an epidemic of distraction and a lack of productivity. It's actually like all of these tools were designed to help us optimize, were designed to help us find more time. But because all of these forces are telling us a very specific story about who we are and who we are related to what we do and how hard we work, any free time that we've gained, we've actually just filled with more work. So this is the issue. And this is what happens when you look at Band-Aid solutions versus root causes. The Band-Aid solution says, get more done, you know, presumably so that you can have extra time to do the things that are important, not realizing that the root cause says work is the most important thing to my identity. Work is how I define myself. Work is how I define my self-worth. So obviously I'm going to do more of that because that's linked to like the OS of my brain versus this idea like, oh, you know, I'm going to value all of this free time that I have. Have you ever held your breath all day? Because life can be stressful, really, with work and family and, well, honestly, everything in between. And we all need someone to talk to sometimes, a non-judgmental person who gets it, who can support us through the rough patches or even just the everyday ups and downs. That's why I really dig Talkspace. It's online therapy that you can use anytime, anywhere, from the privacy of your own home or office, or even while you're waiting in carpool line, a perfect life hack. And Talkspace has over 3,000 licensed therapists, so it's easy to find the right person for you, and they can match you up with your therapist on the very same day. And you can send your therapist unlimited text, audio, picture, or even video messages from anywhere at any time. And you'll hear back daily, five days per week. And did I say it's affordable? Because it's very affordable. All you need is a computer with an internet connection or the Talkspace mobile app. Easy peasy. So, Here are the deets to make your life a little less stressful. To get matched up with your perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com. And hey, make sure to use the code UNMISTAKABLE to get $45 off your first month and show your support to our show. That's UNMISTAKABLE at Talkspace.com. Or just head over to the show notes and use the link there. And don't forget to use UNMISTAKABLE to get your $45 off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's so much here, you know, I mean, so many layers to this. I think there are a handful of quotes that really stood out to me in the book. You said, you know, at the heart of our contemporary relationship with work is the American dream, the ultimate ethos that has captured our collective yearning to realize our potential. One of the most uh, cultural, you know, most culturally enduring pervasive narratives, it dangles the promise of opportunity and prosperity to every individual who is willing to work hard for them. And I think that the, the, you know, with that is the presupposition that we're all starting on a level playing field. You know, I heard Kamala Harris talking about it in her interview with Trevor Noah. And she said, yeah, that that's one of the biggest problems is that we think we're all starting on the same playing field. Uh, but we're not in any way at all, from our genetics to the environment that we were brought in, to the money our parents have, to the debt we have from school, all of those things are are completely uneven playing fields. Yeah, but you see that reality goes against the narrative of, you know, of success based on the merit of hard work. And this is when you have Mm -hmm. these very powerful cultural myths that actually undermine the reality that we see and repackage what we think we see and what we think we know into this this notion that your success is directly proportional 
to the amount of effort that you put in, to the work that you put in. And we repeat the story over and over again. And I mean, I talk about this a lot in the book. Think of the modern day work heroes. Think about how we talk about these figures. We talk about them not just through their accomplishments, not just what they've achieved. We talk about it in in terms of how hard they've worked as well. That reinforces the story that success is inexorably linked to hard work. And it is, but as you said, it's not the full picture. And then the flip side, which is I think the chapter, I do believe the chapter you're quoting from is called The Shadow Dream. The flip Mm -hmm. side of that is then we take on all of this pressure on ourselves and we think to ourselves, well, if I'm not successful based on my own perceived sorry, based on my own perceptions of success, then that means I must not be working hard enough. And that also drives people to fill up spare time with more work because they feel like their lack of perceived success is a direct result of a lack of effort on their part. When as you and I know, there's a whole variety of socioeconomic conditions, of geopolitics, of pulse. There's a whole lot of other factors that come into play when defining somebody's success in addition to hard work. Yeah. So you allude to the the idea of instant celebrity in this book, um, which I, I, I want to talk about because you and I were just talking about social media beforehand. And I mean, what has your research shown about the impact of this sort of access to instant celebrity on the way that we work and the way we feel about ourselves? I think it's created these weird, like circus mirror reflections of what reality looks like. And social media has been hijacked, obviously, by corporate interests, right? Once upon a time, you would see a picture of your friend, um, you know, at a restaurant that she enjoyed, or maybe talking about something that she purchased, and you would be like, oh, that's really cool. I'm going to check that out. And now you have people that have built multi-million dollar empires out of becoming quote-unquote influencers. Like, What does that mean when the original premise of social media, which was based on like life as it really is, morphed into this hyper curated, hyper branded, um, like weird mirror universe where nobody is photographing or presenting their life as it is. It's like everyone is presenting it through this filter of illusion and this filter of like, of like performative hustling, performative work, you know, and they, they were, everyone's posturing in a certain way to fit into this work narrative. And all of this under the backdrop that we also live in an attention economy where everyone is fighting to be heard and everyone is fighting to be seen. And so you have people that are now prioritizing fame as a mechanism of recognition over, you know, over other types of work, you know, young people saying they'd rather be famous or rather be work for a famous person, be in proximity to fame, then start their own business or then do something on their own. So that I think still ties to the same to the same fundamental mythology. I, I think that that is tied to this notion that who you are is linked to what you do, and that there's a, there's a, almost a, um, a sense of like, oh, I'm going to use these social tools to work hard in order to like project this image of myself. But I don't know, like, I like I wouldn't. I mean, I hesitate to say it's a bad thing because I think there's both a lot of pros and cons. I just think it's creating this narrative around the reality of what other people think their friends are doing or living, which creates like a lack of resonance with what's actually happening. And that's harmful for everyone because if everyone's presenting this perfect picture life, then no one's really talking about burnout, about depression, about anxiety, about the real costs of hard work, about the real cost of hyper productivity. And that's what we really need to talk about because that's where people's healths are being impacted. 
So I want to get into that in more depth, uh, but I, I, and I think this makes a perfect segue into that. You say that, you know, when we link who we are with what we do, we're hanging our self-worth on a precarious ledge. And I remember that very distinctly because I actually quoted it in something that I wrote uh, in an article on Medium. And to me, it w- I think that book, that line in particular really stood out because it was literally my entire experience of, you know, the post-book launch phase of Audience mm-hmm. of One. Uh, so how do you unlink those two things? I mean, I can only speak to my own experience, but, you know, in the book, I talk about an episode of burnout that I, that I went through that was brutal. And at one point in the book, I say, you know, like, what do you do with a writer who can't write? And I didn't realize until, you know, that I had pulled that from something that I had sort of scribbled on a notebook somewhere. And I didn't even realize how much I had linked the concept of writer, right. To my identity. So all of a sudden I felt like I had lost a limb, like I had lost this essential core component of myself and actually working through that burnout, I realized as much as I love writing, as much as I identify with writing, like who I am just as just me without anything else, without anything related to work, without anything related to professional achievements, like just me, that's enough. And that's who I am. Everything else is just like trimmings, you know? And that was really hard because that requires you to come face to face with your insecurities, with your ego, with your own sense of self-worth, with your own sense of your need for validation, with your, you know, your need for attention. I had to face all of that dark parts of myself and be like, okay, it's okay. I'm actually more than writing. I'm more than my output. I'm more than this book. Even if I never write another word again, like it's, it's okay because like I'm still me and that's enough. And that's the hard work that so many of us try to skip over. And I think that is the most important conversation that we should be having with our friends, with ourselves, that we should be having with our children, because we are creating a generation of people that is going out there believing that everything that they are, that their entire contribution in life is solely linked on their professional accomplishments. And I think think that's really sad. I think we deserve better than that. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. 
As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, you're, you're, you're appreciating the choir. I mean, I, I've, I've written a, uh, I'm working on an idea for a book about success on your own terms. And what I realized is that I had this idea for a long time that, okay, I'm successful on my own terms. And then I realized, wait a minute, I'm successful, maybe not on the terms of like society's definition of success or society's life plan, but I've just ditched it for a life plan handed to me by people on the internet. <laughs> so now, you know, <laughs> it's true. I mean, I, that, that that was the realization. I was like, you know what? I'm like now my my definition of success at the moment. You know, it, it, it wasn't my definition of success. It was based on what you know lifestyle designers and book publishers and people on the internet thought success looked like, like getting to do all these cool things. And I was like, holy shit, that's still somebody else's yardstick. Well, we're human beings. We don't exist in a vacuum. We are always going to be influenced by the thoughts and you know the what other people are doing. The difference is is about your awareness and how you're being influenced. It's one thing for you to evaluate the lessons that these like life designers, I think you call them, you know, put on the internet for you to select the things that serve you, select the things that are useful to you, and then make a conscious choice to implement those actions. That's fine. It's quite another for you to live your whole life trying to live up to standards that were packaged you by society of which you never are really aware that you consumed, aware that you absorbed, or, or aware that you're being influenced by. That's the difference. I think the the whole point of hustle and float is to really try to make a conscious decision to say, I'm going to choose where my standards come from. I'm going to be intentional about how I build my work life. And who cares if you get that inspiration from a blog post or from a book that you read, as long as you're choosing it actively, consciously for you. And I think it's, it's, it's great. Okay, so this is great because there's so much here we can actually argue about. Right? I'll do it. Let's do it. Let's fight. Uh, so I, I I agree that you know you have the ability you supposedly have the ability to make a conscious decision. We like that idea. Um, so I asked a question. Uh, you know, when I was, I was I've been doing research for this idea for a next book. You know, one was about you know what are your expectations. I asked a question of how do you measure your life to multiple people, and one of the things I put in there said how many of you measure your life via social media metrics. Most people said they don't. Okay. And after quitting for 30 days, what I realized is that we can say that we don't, we can say that we're making conscious choices, but these tools are so designed to be addictive to us that our behavior is largely unconscious. And much of the comparison that we end up making when we look at our heroes and role models is completely unconscious because of the way that all these things are designed. So I wonder how you resolve that paradox. But that's the exact thing. That's the exact crux of hustle and float is that they're only invisible so long as you don't name them for what they are. They're only invisible so long as that you don't 
look at them and notice them and acknowledge how they're influencing you. So for example, with your social media example, right? And we we talked about this a little bit where it's like, okay, there's no point in, you know, you can say, well, I don't measure, you know, asking, do you measure your, um, do you measure your life worth by social media metrics? Like, of course people are going to say, no, that's not necessarily the right question. Better question would be to forget social media and just to say, you know, like, who are the people that you admire? Who are the, what are the, the things that you wish you could be doing? Where do, where, what triggers your envy? You know, what triggers your, who do you compare yourself to and why? What is it that they're doing that makes you feel, say, like lacking? And once you start really asking yourself those questions, then you realize that it's not actually about social media. It's about feeling unworthy. It's about feeling um, unseen. Like there's all these other things that come up that have nothing to do with social media. But once you break the hold that those unconscious forces have on you, then social media and those other stuff, they're not going to influence you without your knowledge anymore because they can't, you'll see right through it. You'll see right through it. And this is the hard work that people don't want to do. You know, like for me, it was reading the artist's way. And I think we talked about this the last time I was here, but one of the most helpful bits of advice that I read from Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way was this idea that your envy is an incredibly powerful tool and in highlighting things that you want for yourself. Because she says, envy isn't that you want to take something away from somebody else. It's that you want, you also want something similar for yourself. And that became a very powerful tool that took away a lot of the negative connotations I had associated with envy and turned it and reframed it into, hey, I'm going to use this uncomfortable feeling that we don't like to talk about, that we we try to shame people if they feel it. We don't let people express it. I'm going to take that and use it as a compass to guide where I felt like I wanted to do more or where I felt like I didn't have enough of something. And then dig deep into that and say, why? Where does this lack of having enough come from? And, you know, and then work from it that way. And that has been one of the most positive things I have done for myself, especially in a world now where every post on social media is an opportunity to compare yourself to somebody else. But if you know what your core is and where you stand, you won't need to compare yourself with anybody else because it that's not the goal. That's not what you're using those tools for anymore. Wow. Uh, amazing. So I think, you know, we've largely been talking about self. Let's shift gears and let's talk about systems. Um, I, this is of, of tremendous interest to me specifically because of what I had alluded to earlier when I said that, you know, we have all these tools, uh, and in theory, it doesn't make sense that we're working the way we do. In fact, you know, Cal Newport, when he was here recently said that the way that we do knowledge work today is similar to the way that we built cars before the industrial revolution Yeah, or before, the, before the assembly line. Absolutely. And that's because when you look at historically, the way that, the way that, let me start this said. When you look at historically the way that we managed workers over time, one, a large part of that was us managing workers that were doing non-creative work. Two, a lot of the structures that we put in place, like the 40-hour work week, were completely, and the eight-hour work day, were completely arbitrary for manual work and have no bearing on creative work. And three, that when those systems were adapted to organizations to form the basis of, we, of what we now call management theory, Um, Many of those systems were not designed to handle the complexity, the ambiguity, or the the lack of of standardization that creative people in their professional capacity have to do every single day. 
And yet, instead of going back to the drawing board and saying, hey, maybe we should design some new systems, we said, no, 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 we're fine. Let's just take this creative system that we have in place that is not designed for any of the type of work that these people are doing, and let's shove them into it anyway and hope it all works out. Unlike Newsflash, spoiler alert, it's not working out for anybody. So some of you may have heard us talking about our new sponsor, Ned, full spectrum hemp oil with CBD in it. Well, Serini has been loving it for sleep and he gave some Ned to his mom. Don't freak out. Ned won't get you high. So he was not getting his mom high. And um, check this out. Serini's mom wrote a letter to Ned. And okay, for this right now, I'm going to be Serini's mom. Okay. Dear Ned, I'm Serini's mom. I tried the hemp oil at his recommendation for my arthritis. It helped me not only reduce my pain, but also reduce the pain meds I was taking and I'm sleeping better. And I also recommended your product to a coworker who ordered two bottles. Kindly, Serini's mom. Don't you just love that? So I use Ned too. And here's the lowdown. Ned's premium CBD oil will nourish you and balance you out. And Ned is extracted from organic hemp flowers, hand harvested and rich with CBD and other cannabinoids. Hey, Serini, give them the details. Hey there. So here are the details. Head over to helloned.com slash unmistakable and use the promo code unmistakable. Again, that's helloned.com slash unmistakable with the promo code unmistakable. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you support our show. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, and I'm finding this, you know, even in workshops that I teach with large corporations that, you know, the lack of efficiency is baffling to me. I think probably only because I've been so removed from that environment for so long. (laughs) And I'm just like, wait a minute, you guys make billions of dollars. How is that even possible with this kind of working, you know, system? Like, how do you... so? You know, I, mean, I remember even when, when I was talking to Cal, he said, you know, he said, if you talk to people, particularly in the C-suite, they, they talk about, oh, we just need to change our norms. And he's like, yeah, that's, you know, we're, we're trying to apply like, you know, productivity hacks and, you know, uh, distraction tools and that kind of shit. But he said, you know, you're talking about fundamentally rewiring the way that knowledge work gets done. How do you get people to buy into that, um, especially when you know, because in my mind, I feel like I could go out and I could say this and it falls on deaf ears because I don't know that a whole hell of a lot changes even after I have these conversations with people. So for me, the part of the work that I've done or that I'm doing is that to go into organizations and talk to teams about this. And one of the things that I found is that when I first started researching for this book, I talked to individuals and they all told me the same thing. This seems really great. And I fully resonate with this message, but my manager, my boss, my colleagues, my CEO, they're not going to go for this. Our culture isn't going to account for this. And this really puzzled me because I kept hearing the same thing over and over again. And I thought to myself, well, how is it possible that every person that I'm talking to is aligned with my thinking, but they all think that somebody else is going to say no to them? So then I went in and I started talking to teams as a whole. I started talking to executive teams. I started talking to departments. I started talking to teams. And what I found was there's so much like social pressure that we put on ourselves and on our colleagues to perform and conform in a certain way that nobody wanted to be the first person to raise their hand and say, hey, like, I want to talk about the way that we're working because to bring up something like burnout, to bring up something like overwork, like feeling overwhelmed was considered to be a sign of inadequacy for the person bringing it up. Like it, it, it like didn't, it didn't reflect properly, didn't reflect positively on them because they thought that was them signaling that they were incapable of doing their job properly. 
But once we had people in a setting and we got them all talking, very quickly became evident that everyone, especially knowledge workers, or as I call them, productive creatives, like everyone is quite hungry for this change. Often they just need to get people in a room to have a real conversation. Again, not about quick fixes, not about norms. You can't just fix norms without really having a deep understanding of your own relationship with how you think or how you feel about your identity and your work ethic and success and 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 all of that stuff. Like that's the stuff that needs to come up to the surface for you to be able to make any changes as a as an individual or as a team. Mm. So, I mean, we're, you know, and then you have the, the sort of flip side of that, right? This idea of identity self, like how do you, how do you make the argument that, okay, you know what, maybe this stuff belongs in a therapist office, not in the workplace. Cause I think about high school guidance counselors and no offense to any of you who are listening, who happen to fall into that category. But I feel like the only thing my high school gu- guidance counselor did was plan my schedule. It wasn't real counseling. <laughs> um, so here's the thing. Like these conversations, they have to ha- they ha- they happen on a, a spectrum, on a continuum of, of varying scales, right? You have to almost go through the steps. You cannot, as an organization or as a team, have a conversation about these elements if the individuals aren't aligned, right? So you're never going to have this large norms if you yourself don't know where you stand. So on one hand, yes, part of this work you have to do individually by yourself, whether it's through the questions in the book, whether it's through working with a coach, whether it's working with a therapist, if that's what you need to do to like get that gunk that's been holding you down and at least just bring it to light, then do that. There's no shame in asking for help, no shame in getting help, no shame in having somebody guide you through that process. Once you're clear on what it is that you need and you and what you want, then I think that empowers you either to make some changes if you don't have the management ability to like make changes to the organization as a whole, you still have some, some, um, you know, some power and, uh, to, to, to focus on your own life, to make some positive changes in your own life, to make sure that at least on an individual level, you're creating the conditions that work for you. And often that means like tackling productivity shame and not being too hard on yourself for not having a quote unquote productive weekend. Then once you're good, then you can bring, come into the organization from a place of understanding of your own needs and have a conversation with your colleagues, with your managers on how those conditions can be created within a policy framework. Without that, like it's just people going in saying, I want flex time or I want this, and then not using flex time or not taking advantage of policies because they're being driven by their own perpetual need to produce more to prove their self-worth. So they're going to have companies that have vacation times and you know, in Canada, I don't know what the stats are in America, but in Canada, like two thirds of Canadians don't take their fully allocated vacation days. So you have the vacation days, the policies are there, the companies are putting these policies into place and people aren't taking them because you have to deal with the individual first before dealing with the individual as an ecosystem. Yeah. Wow. So we've, you know, addressed both, uh, systems and self. Uh, let's talk specifically about stories. Uh, in how they play a role in all of this. I think that there was something that you said uh, in reference to Marie Forleo's B-School, where you said it's a very compelling message that while lovely in its sentiment is rooted in consumption-based empowerment that requires the purchase of digital products to help people discover their true calling. <laughs> oh, you're going to get me into trouble. Um... There's no way I was going to go out of this conversation without asking you about that because I happen to, I happen to agree with that to it to a large degree. Um, Yeah. And the thing is, is like, I think it's, I really think it's, it is a lovely sentiment. I think it's a nice, empowering sentiment on the surface. And I think it, it, it wraps up so much of 
what we would like our work reality to be. I just think there is for me, and this is just like my personal opinion, I think there is something kind of dangerous in building people up with this expectation that the thing that they do like for work is going to be the single most valuable contribution that they're going to make as a human being on earth. Because not everyone has that opportunity. Not everyone has the privilege and luxury of doing so. And I think it reinforces this idea that your self-worth is dependent on your job. And that your that that you know your unique gifts can only be expressed through some sort of you know work or some sort of economic exchange or some sort of transaction. And I always joke with my husband and I say, you know, like I love what I do. I love my job. I find my job incredibly fulfilling. I don't think that like billions of years of evolution and like all of the things that my ancestors had to get right over, you know, tens of thousands of years was some sort of divine plan to get me to this point so that I could just like write books about work, you know, like my life purpose is beyond what I do for a job. And I just think it puts so much pressure on people to have to find this end all be all, you know, it's like we, it's like work not only has to pay the bills, it not only has to be intellectually stimulating for those people who are lucky enough to do something that interesting, but on top of all of that, we also expect it to be spiritually rewarding. And that doesn't mean you can't work for companies that have good causes. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't support companies that are doing good. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be good, that we shouldn't be trying to change the world. It just means that going back to my earlier point, our value as human beings are just intrinsic in the fact that like we just exist. The fact that we exist is enough. Everything else is just extra positive stuff. And please go forward and do those amazing things and 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 help improve people's lives like of course but remember if you did that you're amazing but even if you're just you you're still amazing and you still exist and you still matter and that's the distinction i just want to i just wanted to make about that yeah wow so <clears throat> i mean I, I love this uh how in the midst of you know media narratives that you know we were alluding to earlier where we, you know, put billionaires on the covers of magazines, you know, every day medium is littered with success porn. If you read medium for an hour, you'll feel like the laziest fucking person on the planet. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody's crushing it. So how in the midst of all that, you know, that is coming into our world constantly, do we have the worldview that you're talking about? Because we're constantly made to feel that we're not enough if we're not doing all of these things. Again, it's just about recognizing patterns like the rags to riches stories that we hear over and over again. This like get up. I mean, I, I take personal offense to this like early bird propaganda that that pops up and every other medium article telling me to get up at 4.30 in the morning. You know, you read those without questioning them, like why I got up at 5 a.m., why I should work out at 5 a.m., why everyone is, you know, and you, I always thought like we why are we not asking instead of saying, Oh, awesome. Great job waking up at five 30 in the morning. Why are we not asking if maybe the expectations that we're putting on ourselves on what we can accomplish in our day is reasonable yeah. because also for this book, like this is a book for high performance. This is a book for people that want to get things done and that have big dreams and have a lot on the go and have a lot on their plate. But it's like, this, the answer isn't overwork. The answer isn't to get up at 5 a.m. unless you're an early bird, in which case more power to you. You know, the answer is just to like, to see those stories for what they are stories and to separate 
that your reality is not necessarily reflective of those same, it's like the same things. And on Medium especially, there's like, it's the same, it's the same version of the same article written 18,000 different ways. Yeah. Yet more, and what is all that advice? Like if you really boil it down, what is all that advice? Be efficient with your time. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it. Be efficient with your time. Like, like be intentional with what you're investing your attention to and like, uh, you know, optimize and try to find some efficiencies in your day-to-day tasks. Like, yeah, we get it. That's not groundbreaking stuff. It's interesting <laughs> to me about hustle and flow. Isn't what can I do to work better? Yeah. Cause we all know what we should be doing. Aren't you interested in why we're not doing it or why we're doing it is another one. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's funny because now you just gave me an idea for a post title, you know, why you should question everybody's advice, including mine. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it's true, right? Like, I think that we we seem to have this. I, I've, I've said this before. I said we treat guidance law like gospel. And then, you know, people's messages turn into dogma, which results in people just blindly following what, you know, Internet celebrities or people they look up to tell them to do. And, you know, I, I always say, like, all advice is context dependent. So, you know, there are people who have spouted this narrative of, oh, everybody should start a podcast. And I'm like, isn't it convenient that those people also happen to sell courses on how to start a podcast? Like, how could you not (laughs) recognize that? Like, that is such a critical part of being discerning and realizing that, yes, this might be good advice, but consider the context in which it's being given to you. Yeah, it's like everyone is trying to fix this thing that they feel is wrong with them. And they think that in order to fix it, they have to build a business, get up at five, do all these crazy things. But I don't think that we're doing it. Like, that's not the right reason to do any of those things. You know what I mean? Like to, 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 if you, if you come at it from an approach of, you feel like you're not worthy enough, or you feel like you're not enough. And we see this all the time. No amount of success is going to fix that, right? No amount of, no amount of dollars in the bank, no amount of magazine covers, no amount of articles about how you don't sleep. Like that's never going to actually fix the core of you not feeling like you're good enough. The irony is that the simplest fix is like you taking the time to figure out where that feeling came from and addressing it and then go out and live your kick-ass life, knowing that you're doing it out of, you know, out of joy, not as a, as a like weird, you know, way to escape your inner demons or something, you know? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, so I have one sort of last question around all of this. Uh, you know, you've been uh, talking to various companies about this, doing workshops with people, meeting with executives and clients, you know, as we just talked about uh, before we hit record. Uh, based on, on kind of what you're talking to them about, what is the future of work going to look like? I think that's like a really hard question. And I actually try not to make any huge predictions about the future of work because we often so hear stories, of, you know, that vary from utopia where everyone has universal basic income all the way to dystopia where we're all essentially living a weird version of Mad Max, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, I think the future of work already is we are shifting towards uh, an era of increased automation. We are and, And that's not just for manufacturing. I'm talking specifically towards knowledge creatives. We're starting to see some of the same efficiencies that transform manufacturing in coming into things like finance and legal and accounting and even journalism and and communications. So I think we have to sort of make our peace with the fact that we are using technology in this way. What I do always talk to clients about is what policies are they putting in place and how are they thinking about the role of 
the technologies that they bring in and how are they keeping their strategies human centric, meaning the tools are just the tools, right? We're the ones that get to decide how to apply them. We're the ones that get to decide how to use them. And if we decide that we're going to have sustainable, ethical, diverse standards, inclusive standards, then it will follow that the technology will adhere because the technology itself is neutral. It's just how you apply it um, that's going to make the difference. So instead of looking at the future, I always say, like, look at the imbalances that are being created in technology today, especially like especially around work. We're constantly connected and people feel, feel overwhelmed. Burnout is on the rise. Um, we have a lot of, of instances of people that just can can never disconnect, can never, um, you know, not link their identity to all of these social media, uh, to all of these social media platforms. So before we worry like about this abstract thing called the future, let's maybe try to start working on some of these things today. Because the other part of the future of work debate that I don't hear discussed very often is what happens to a society that has so linked its identity and self-worth to this idea of work when the idea of work or the way our parents or grandparents have them might not exist in the next couple of years. Mm. I don't think we're psychologically prepared for some of these changes. I think the technology and the economics of it will sort itself out for good or for bad, depending how it all plays out. But I don't think that we as human beings are ready for the psychological impact of having such an important part of our identity be taken away from us. Wow. And that I think is going to cause a lot of tension. Sounds like your next book. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You're, you're giving me ideas for books. I'm giving you ideas for posts. It's great. I love it. Yeah. Um, well, I have one final question for you, uh, which uh, I've asked you before, and I don't remember how long it's been since we've talked. So it'll be interesting to see how you answer this uh, several years later. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it's um, authenticity. And I know that that word gets thrown around a lot, but I'm going to clarify my definition and say, I think it's somebody who is willing to show their vulnerability and to show their, their real human self. We have enough heroes that seem untouchable. I think at least for me, I really resonate to people that share the real experiences, how life you know, knock them down and scratch them up and how they continued on because fundamentally that's all one thing that we share in this human experience and that's the ups and downs. And so we should be talking about the downs as much as the ups and we should be celebrating each other just for, you know, getting up in the morning because for some of us, like that's all we can handle and that's okay. Wow. Well, <clears throat> I think that makes uh, a really fitting end to a very, very thought provoking conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, your books and everything that you're up to? Um, you can go to hustleandfloat.com where you can get a free download of the introduction. And then you can find me all over social media under Rahaf Harfoush. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. 
Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.